Welcome to today's episode of Fire in the Belly. This is where we get to hear some pretty inspiring stories from some amazing people. You know, it's always an absolute pleasure to sit down, take time out and have a warts and all conversation about their journey. I'm always intrigued by what it's taken for people to get to where they are today. And hopefully in this interview, we get to hear some more about that. From this, my mission is to help people to find their own fire in their belly. And from that, to live the mightiest version of you. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's guest. Success is a process, not an event. Hello and welcome to the Fire in the Valley show. Today we have myself, Mighty Pete, and we're joined by the Lois Letchford. So first of all, good morning, Lois. Good morning, Pete. It's great to be here. I love the topic of your show. Thank you very much. Listen, I'm, I'm delighted to have you on, so it's going to be great. So first of all, I'm going to give our listeners just a bit of a background to Lois. So Lois... Letchford's dyslexia came to light at the age of 39 when she faced teaching uh, her seven-year-old non-reading son, uh, Nicholas. Examining her reading failure to, uh, caused her to adapt and change lessons for her son. The results were dramatic. Lois qualified as a reading specialist to use her non-traditional background, multi-continental experience and passion to assist other failing students. Her teaching and learning have equipped her with a unique skill set and perspective. As a teacher, she considers herself a literacy problem solver. Reversed, a memoir is uh, is her first book. In the story, she details her dyslexia and the journey of her son's dramatic failure in first grade. She tells of the twists and turns that promoted her passion and her son's dramatic academic turnaround, as in uh, 2018. He received his PhD and all is good. Thank you. That's a good start. Hopefully that's not bad for a dyslexic myself as well. So reading that out is a bit of a challenge for me. So <laughs> Love it. Oh, that's great. Welcome to the show. Honestly, it's great to have you on here. So we've, we've obviously got a lot to talk about. We, I have wanted- a lo- we have a lot to talk about. <laughs> I got diagnosed at 37. So yeah, so there you go. I'm a bit of a a, a late bloomer, let's just say. I've never been diagnosed. I never want to have official diagnosis because the thought of going through that test to say, oh, you're stupid, unless you really thought you were, would kill me. Wow. Mm. It's, it's fascinating whether you get diagnosed or not, but I know from my symptoms and the struggles I've had that I am dyslexic. Mm. That's intriguing because I, I got diagnosed, I have three young girls and I got diagnosed for them so that if we're going through the system, we can, we can sort of highlight it quicker. Yes. And un, unintentionally, it's actually had an unintended impact on my life. So we know for them, we, we know to look out for it. It was always one of those running jokes, yes. right? Yes. But um, how was it for you, tell me? Because I mean, obviously this is, this is quite, it's been a, a big part of your journey now. Yes. Uh, How was it for me? Well, see, I grew up reading words Mm. that I couldn't comprehend in Mm. school, and I went to school in the 1960s. Um, The fact that I could read words stopped me from being a total outcast in school, but it didn't make reading easy, you know, and I can still remember, you know, trying to read books and I would say it was like wading through mud up to my neck. And you just keep plodding and pushing forward, but really not enjoying it, just taking so much mental effort. 
to come out with so little. And I think that's a really distinct point, isn't it? Because the way it was described to me, it's, it's not that you can't read. It's just that you'll never do it for leisure or pleasure. I do now. <laughs> I, I, I uh, read everything and I read diligently I, and I love reading and I get quite cranky that so many books so poorly written have done so well. Mm-hmm. And bestseller list and you think, this is terrible. Look at the number of pages in the first chapter. There's 70 and all I'm doing is flipping. When does this chapter end? <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. What changed then? Oh, oh, the first thing, the big change in my life was when I got married. So here's me. And, okay, I went to school. I went through a school to do teacher education training and became a physical education teacher. I went back to a school and taught kids. And I thought, I've had enough of this. I want to do something different in my life. And so I took a working holiday in the UK. And I stayed there for about three years. And while I'm on a bus trip to Oxford one day, I met this guy who had an Australian accent. And so I thought, I've got to talk to him. He was younger than me. And I heard him say he was on a scholarship. And any person you know, moving from Australia to the UK on a scholarship is super smart. He was, I met him, we had family come from the same area of Brisbane, and then a couple of years later we were married. Nice. But, you've, got, you've got a good eye. You, you pick them well. Ah, <laughs> oh, it's fascinating, that choice of life partner, who you choose and who you go with, because my family grew up on a dairy farm in southeast Queensland. And money was always a worry. Is there enough money to pay the bills? And that was, you know, I was not going to marry someone who's going to leave me on the breadline because our family were on the breadline, I think, for most of our childhood. We always had food because we were on a farm. But the, the, the quality of life appears good, but when you're worried about putting food on the table and paying the bills, life's a struggle. And many people are like that today. And my mum and dad worked. We went to school. You look after yourself. And had your big family, many siblings? Oh, there's four. Four in our family. One brother and three sisters. And even that's interesting because at the time, my older cousins all went to work. And because we were on the farm, the expectation in our farming community was that girls would stay at home and get married. And my mother said, my girls are being educated. And she fought for us to be educated. And it made a oh, huge difference in my life. But it was a fight for her. It was a battle for her to have her girls educated. Was your mother educated? No, no. and. My mother's dyslexic. Mm. I'm working with my son, Nicholas, in Oxford. He's seven. She's having her 70th birthday. And she said, Lois, I needed help in school like you were giving Nicholas. Wow. And it's fascinating, you know, because like you're dyslexic, you start looking back onto all the signs and symptoms. My mother really read. She read the Bible and the Bible was really the only book she read. She taught Sunday school to young children, and in the Sunday school, every lesson she did with pictures. 
you know, you could see her mind working, needing the pictures and telling the story through pictures. So she could read and write, but she never did very well in school. But she made sure that we were educated. What she was very good at was creating dresses, designing a dress and making it, that spatial awareness, and that was her skill. That's quite common, isn't it? You, you get an overcompensation in other senses. You know, when you get one, either through disguising or compensating or whatever else it is, but suddenly their spatial awareness, as you say, that creativity that uh, fires up the other genes. I didn't get that. I didn't get any of those things. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I can't say that. You know, I remember really feeling, you know, in about sixth or seventh grade, I've got nothing going for me. Well. I can't do anything. So that was why it was. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. That's my story, but it took me a long time to realise, you know, how dyslexic I am and the impact it had on my life. You know, it overrides everything. And then marrying this man who's brilliant at everything and reads everything was a huge impact. And then when you have children, of course, the one thing I did to my boys was read and read and read and read and read. And we'd find these funny books and just read and read and read. And that helps me as well. So your reading to children actually helps you. Was it opposites attract with your husband? Oh, must be. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I'm adventurous and I'm game. I'm game to try anything. And what it did was allowed him to have his career and me follow along. Our, son, our sons are in their 30s now. And they, my eldest says, it took me a long time to realise that, that wives don't always say yes. <laughs> Oh, it's awesome. It's great. It's, it's quite a reflection yeah. to have that, really, isn't it? To have that yes. relationship. Yeah. 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 But it was Nicholas's story. Nicholas went to school in 1994, and I knew there was a problem. Mm. I don't know how your girls were going, but I knew there was a problem, and, and he didn't want to go to school on first day of grade one, and we found a stick insect. And so we put that in a little box and gave it air holes and sent him to school with that. And I, at the end of the day, I said, did you get to show your teacher? And he just said, no. You know, and I thought, this is terrible. And on day six of school, I said to the teacher, how's this going? And she just went, oh, well, you know, he's so far behind. I don't know how I'm going to help him. You know, I just thought. I should have taken him out of school then. My story is a long-term case study, and I'll tell the story and then come back to that. Mm. Okay, so I send him to school every day throughout that year. My boy's wetting his pants, he's biting his fingernails and staring into space. Why did I send him to school? Because if you don't, the school comes back to you and they say, well, you know, he's failing because you failed to teach him. You mm. took him out school if you had left him here he would have been fine yeah i'll come back to that keep a point <laughs> dot point so grade one is what age just give us a timeline on six this. five six. and a half six yeah so he's being assessed at five and a half at six casually by somebody i'm assuming who's not trained and no way to assess them it's just a teacher saying it's a pain that was the start and then he gets assessed at six and a half in the last two weeks of the school year in australia and what does the testing show? It shows he's got no strengths, he can read 10 words, and he's got a low IQ. 
What did the child do in that day when he was testing with that lady? He just refused to cooperate. Mm. But they have it on paper. Your child has a low IQ. He refused to work with us. Therefore, he's not very smart. So your fire in the belly is fascinating. Anyway, <laughs> as it happens, uh, the following year, 1995, my husband has study leave back in Oxford. My husband did his PhD in Oxford. And we go back to Oxford with the boys. We arrive in July. School's gone holiday, so there's another six weeks gone. I, Nicholas refuses to work while his brother's at home. I've took a series of books with me to help him learn to read called Success for All. Words on a page is to decode the word, say the word, and then move on. By the time you went from the beginning of the page to the end of the page, Nicholas had forgotten the first words at the beginning of the page. Forget it. And I end up being like the first grade teacher. Come on, you've got to work harder. You've got to do this. And my mother-in-law was with me and she said, Lois, put away what's not working and make learning fun. Good. And I needed that input. You know, when something's going wrong, sometimes you don't know how to break it and you need someone to say, this is an okay, let's find another way. And that was, they were the words that did it for me and it was fantastic. Because I'm sitting there thinking, what do I do now? Because internally, I'm panicking. You know, how is this kid going to learn to learn? And I thought, what else can I do? What do I have to do? And I thought, he can rhyme words and he can see patterns. With those two things, I can write a little poem. So I wrote a little poem. And the next day, instead of Nicholas panicking and trying to do things he couldn't do, he relaxed and he went, oh. And I read the poem to him. We read it together. We found the rhyming words. He illustrated it, blah, blah, blah. It just went on and on and on because there was one poem, then the next and the next and the next and the next. That was transformative. One lady spoke to me when I was in Oxford and she said, well, what's happening with Nicholas, this little boy? And I said, well, he's having a problem with reading. She came to my house and she said, I've got a book for you. And it was hear it, see it, say it, to teach him decoding. Ah, I looked and this is perfect because it was multisensory. We touched everything. I made word puzzles. It was dealing with the CH, the SH, and the TH, which are the, the digraph blends, short vowel, and a consonant. Simple stuff. Nicholas took eight weeks to go through that book. He took another eight weeks or six weeks to go through the consonant blends, which are the TR, the DR, the PR, the PLs. I mean, he's very slow. However, the poetry came first and the poetry drove our lessons. And then double O comes up, as in Cook, Look and Book. And I wrote a poem, Captain Cook has a notion there's a gap in the map in the great big ocean. He took a look without the help of any book, hoping to find a quiet little nook. And the, the poem goes on. But poetry gives you these, you know, these little common words with enormous ideas. So with that, we were at 
the science spectrum, the Science Museum in London, and we saw globes of the world, and they had them from, I don't know, 10th century right through to the 20th century. And I looked at it and I said, Nicholas, look, there's a gap in the map. There's no Australia. And up to that point, I hadn't had a map. I hadn't had a globe. I thought the words would be enough. And I realised he needed pictures with words. And now we saw this and lights went on in both our minds. And Nicholas said to me over time, he said, uh, can I see Captain Cook's original maps? was his first question. And then he said, who came before Captain Cook? And I said, well, that was easy. That was Christopher Columbus. And he said, and who came before Columbus? And I go, this kid doesn't have a low IQ. And I needed to see that to even value what's going on in his brain. The, the growth with teaching of decoding was millimetres, measured in millimetres, but he was doing it. The growth in exponential thinking was <laughs> And then I could see this dichotomy. That's all right. And then because we're in Oxford, he asked, you know, the guy that came before Columbus was a man called Ptolemy, and he came in 250 AD. He drew the world's first map. He put north at the top of the map. And Nicholas, you know, where will we find a Ptolemy map? No idea, Nicholas, but we're in England. It'll be somewhere around. We go to the Bodleian Library. We go to the Bodleian Library gift shop and say, where would we see a Ptolemy map? The lady reaches around from behind the counter, picks up a book, pops it on the table and says, this is a book of Ptolemy maps. That'll be five pounds, please. So learning is not just happening in our classroom in the morning. It's happening everywhere. We went from the classroom to Oxford, and in Oxford you know so-and-so and so and these people were here, and this is what they did. And Nicholas is just like a little sponge with this information learning everything. Anyway, we return to Australia and I meet the lady who'd done the testing 12 months prior who said he's got no strength, low IQ. And I said to her, we've had such a wonderful time. Here's me. I'm excited. I'm over the moon. And she says, I've spoken to the reading teacher and he's gone backwards. And in fact, He's the worst child I've seen in 20 years of teaching. Now, why am I here on your show? She put a fire in my belly eventually. I, when someone says things like that to me, I can't say anything. I can't respond. So I just walked away, really quite depressed. Within a couple of hours, I go back to the school and I said to the lady, you can call my son whatever you like, but don't expect him to learn like everyone else. And so her words were a real uh, flag to me to say, okay, we've got a challenge on our hands. Let's just do it. And I knew, I knew then Nicholas was smart. I knew he could do things. How much he could do, no idea. 
but I knew that label that she gave him was not right. Okay. Now, this is your dyslexic daughters. That very afternoon, the reading teacher, Nicholas has two teachers. He has a classroom teacher who is absolutely wonderful, and he has a reading teacher. The reading teacher is now sending him home 10 sight words. You know those little words that are really difficult to learn? She's at least sending 10, not 20. Last year she'd send him 20. Couldn't do any of that. 10. He knew eight of the 10 words. He didn't know now and he didn't know saw. But for saw, she gave him the same two sentences she gave every other child in her care. And the sentences were, I saw a cat climb up a tree and I saw a man rob a bank. Nicholas read, I saw a cat. No, no. I was a cat. No. I had a cat and, and, and then he just handed me the paper and gave up. It took me a while to work out what was going on. And I give this example to teachers because it's critical that they get it. Nicholas has in his mind the concrete meaning of the word saw, meaning to cut. I saw a cat, he cut the cat. No, you don't do that. I was a cat. No, I was never a cat. That, and the other two don't make sense. The teacher has given standardised sentence that she gave to everyone else. She's given the abstract meaning of the word saw and failed to show him what the reader has to do to understand reading. Now, how critical was my intervention at this time? Now, the, that's one point, right? She's failed to show the detailed meaning of how written language works. She gave an example. I saw a cat climb up a tree. We're living in Brisbane, Australia. Brisbane, Australia is hot. It's treed. There are native animals and native wildlife everywhere in the suburbs, not koalas or kangaroos, but smaller ones. So you've got birds, rainbow lorikeets everywhere. You've got cockatoos. You've got possums on roofs. You've got bats in the sky. Cats are destructive animals, and you're not encouraged to have outdoor cats in Australia because they eat the local wildlife. So why is she using a sentence like, I saw a cat climb up a tree? You'll never see it. That's number two problem. And number three problem, the child has just been in another country for six months and she couldn't find an example or ask Nicholas, what did you see when you were in England? Personalise the experience. And when I did it, I said, Nicholas, what did we do when we went to Windsor Castle? And Windsor Castle was huge for my boys because they had all these swords and guns. And the kids were there. I said, Nicholas, when we went to Windsor, did we put a saw in our bag? So you give the opposite meaning. And we, we get to Windsor and we pull out our saw and we say, let's take a brick out of the wall. No, no one's looking. No, we didn't do that. What did we do? We looked at it. So it's a personal experience that he's been in. He knows we looked. When we went to see the Gutenberg Bible, Nicholas, did we take a saw with us? Oh, no, no, no. He said, never. What does it mean? Saw has the meaning of the word look. Yes, it means to cut, but it also means to look. 
it was the combination of the two, the worst child I've seen in 20 years of teaching and really poor teaching that drives me because without correcting that, the child has nothing. And how easily schools fit into that narrative of your child can't do anything. He didn't get it. He's not smart. Rather than what do we have to do to teach children to read? That put the fire in my belly. And on top of that, jumping ahead, over the next years, I become a reading specialist. And so I have to go back to study to do this. I'm enrolled in the local university and they have a, an academic paper titled Beyond the Deficit Theory, written by an Australian academic. And it says when children fail to learn to read, we say, look at their IQ. Well, look at their background. Well, look at this, look at that. Yeah. And what we fail to do is give them adequate demonstrations of word. I lived the academic literature. Why am I on your show? Because those people put a fire in my belly. Would it ever have got picked up, do you think, or when? No. No. Mm. And, in fact, when Nicholas is 11, we, you know, he, we move continents again. He gets tested and his, he has the official label is second percentile speech language impaired. His ability to recall these isolated, abstract little words is two out of 100. And how quickly and easily that diagnosis in itself and his inability to learn in a regular way would have put him on the back burner. He can't learn. He's got a language problem. Your child is dumb. And he has no memory. He's got no memory for words. See, we've got it on paper. He's got no memory for words. Fast forward 20 years. I don't know if the story will go down well or not. Do you know Gilbert and Solomon stories? Uh, yeah. Pardon me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You've heard them. Do you know you, you know any of the songs or anything in it? I can't think of any, to be honest. Okay. Yeah. Gilbert and Sullivan were phenomenal, and they were phenomenal in Australia in the 90s because a company did reproduce the Gilbert and Sullivan and the, the parodies and the wordplay in them is phenomenal. And there are these big, long passages that an actor will say, Nicholas learned it. So for a child you think he's got no memory for words, can 20 years later learn something from Gilbert and Sullivan? And, it, and it, this one he learned was, I am the very model of a modern major general. That's all I can remember. And it goes on and funny, funny, funny stuff. His memory was phenomenal. His memory for the isolated, the abstract and the irrelevant at six and seven was really poor. We've got to find a way around that so that we can access his memory and he can learn to read. How does this resonate with you? It makes so much sense. I think being diagnosed so late, as you say, it's only now you start to actually putting pieces together and it's going, okay. I compensated through a mixture of bad behavior and out of school activities. I really find it difficult 
to go down the alley what would have happened to Nicholas if we'd not been to Oxford. Hmm. That was such a transformative period in both our lives. And we, as I said, we had four months of actual book learning. We would do two to three hours a day in the morning. When my youngest was at school, because I had three boys, the eldest went to school and made a mess of it. Nicholas was with me and the youngest was three and he had kindergarten three days a week. So while my in-laws were with us, I could teach Nicholas four or five days a week. The moment they left, I was down to just the three days because Nicholas wouldn't cooperate. But it, you know, we think, teachers think reading is about the teaching and decoding. They forget all of the other foundational stuff that's needed to allow kids to fly. And so that's, that experience is what drove me to become a reading teacher. What's your feeling? And it's not, it's not a persecution of the teacher per se. It's, do you think it, is it ignorance and not in the rude sense, just not knowing? Do you think it's? Yes. Absolutely. I just don't know. Yeah. They don't know. They don't know. It, it's actually, it's a combination of both. One, they don't know. And then the second is that this child is not very smart. It's the combination. Hmm. It's just one. And see what Nicholas's story has done for me is driven me to say, I'll teach this child to read. I'm not going to question their IQ. I'll question their language and their ability to understand language and their ability to remember it. Okay, why can't they remember it? But I'm not questioning their IQ or my ability to teach them. I'm going to change it until you read. And teachers go in with a fixed mindset. The other problem we have is that reading for vast majority of people happens by teachers doing minimal amount of work. They think if I teach these kids to decode, they get it. And the emphasis becomes on decoding. And the vast majority of kids get it, like about 60% will get it to some degree. And I would even place myself within that range. I learn to decode words. Many actually learn to do it more effectively, but then I'm on the borderline. Yes, I can decode words, but I can't copy them. Once you get into that lowest 30% of the population and it, it's language, it's not IQ, of their ability to understand language and read in language on paper, that's when teachers really need more knowledge, more experience, more time, more time to engage these kids and work out what they have to do. What, what did you find? Is there anything in particular that aggravated? Yes. One, there's me. I was dyslexic. I am dyslexic. The second is Nicholas had ear infections from the age of 8 to 18 months. I knew there was a problem. What I didn't know was the impact that has on the child's brain. You know, for nearly... 10 months of his life, of when the brain is 
growing exponentially. He is not hearing oral language. A critical component to learning to read is having good hearing. And I read in my readings, you only need one in ear infection a year for five years to create a learning disability. And it impacts the child's hearing. It impacts the way the brain grows because the brain starts with a whole lot of neurons. Mm. And as you, as you use as the neurons, the brain starts to create waves or connections between each one. And the more it hears it, that's the, the connection that grows. If you're not hearing language, that connection's gone. It almost explains, I suppose, maybe someone is deaf, why speech would be less clear. Okay. And when you have ear infections, not only when the child is completely deaf, in and out, the hearing is not accurate either. There's distortions hmm. to the sound, and it's why the consonant blends then. You know, the ooh, play, hmm. play and play. You know, there's that one sound that makes a difference. It is quite challenging for children. And then you've got the addition, not only the sound, but the language that they lack. They're not hearing the huge number of words that other children hear. So it becomes multifaceted where their deficits lie. Yes. Is there, was there any part of the learning he was taking up naturally or do you just get a system shut down and therefore it's nothing? Puzzles. Okay. Nicholas was brilliant at puzzles. And you know, you take kids somewhere and you take activities with them and we had this puzzle box and it would have had four, six, nine, 12, hmm. four puzzles in them, each of a different size and each of a different animal. And some academic or medical doctor was watching him and he just said, that's amazing. And Nicholas would have been under two and he did it all independently. The challenge, who cares that you've got good spatial awareness when you're six? Mm -hmm. It's not a skill anyone's looking at. Yeah. And that's either down to teacher mentality or, you know, the, the, the rigidity of the system, right? And they've got to learn to read. Mm. I've got to, and that, not only they have to learn, they have to learn this one. Mm. And I've, I, you know, this is, this is stories. Nicholas is now 33, so it's a while ago now. But I, I've learned so much and I haven't stopped the learning. Because I'll go on with the story. Because Nicholas learns to read by the time he's seven and three quarters. And I knew, and in my book, I've got a wonderful chapter on that I woke up at five o'clock in the morning and there was, there was this little voice talking, coming from the lounge room. And I got out of bed and there was Nicholas reading a book that he'd read the year before independently. He's dressed in his school uniform. Now, this is the first time Nicholas would have dressed himself. And he's reading a book. It's like, 
I can do this. And you know, and I'm there. Nicholas is reading. And that was a critical moment to see that he could read independently and be happy doing it. And he had phenomenal classroom teachers in grade two, grade three, and grade four in Australia. Phenomenal. And his third grade teacher, he still loves her. She was just so good. And she read a book to them. She would read a chapter a day. And, and then you never read any more that day. You've got to wait till tomorrow. So she had these kids on tender hooks about reading. And in 1999, Nicholas is 11. He's in fifth grade. My husband takes a job in Lubbock, Texas. Now, I don't think that's a place you would know. But it's in the middle of West Texas, six hours from Dallas, northwest. Flat, brown, boring. People say there's not a hill or a tree to spoil the view. It's like a tablecloth. And, just, and you get, you know, 19 inches of rain a year, uh, 100 days above 100 in summer. So you live indoors. Anyway, we went there. But it is a university town. In my book, I identify nine things that happened in Texas to Nicholas that would not have happened in Brisbane, Australia. And in Lubbock, Texas, Nicholas went from the bottom to the top. He graduated in the top 20% of his class with physics, chemistry, calculus, you name it, he did it. Is that, was that down to the teaching or to your awareness, do you think? A lot of things, many things. At the first, you know, the whole story of Nicholas is a lesson not only in persistence, but if you want children to succeed, what do you have to do? In Brisbane, Australia, Nicholas is reading 20 minutes a night and everybody is happy because he's exceeded expectations. We didn't think he would read or write. Here he's doing both. We moved to Lubbock, Texas, and the first thing the principal said is, Nicholas is going into fifth grade. I think he should go into fourth grade, not fifth grade. This means Nicholas is repeating for a second time. And my husband says, well, won't he be old when he graduates from high school? And she said, oh, that's a problem. However, you know, we've got this class in middle school where he can do grades seven, eight, and nine in two years. So he repeated fourth grade, does seven, eight, and nine in two years, and then goes into high school with his peers. That was one. The second thing that happened is he goes to school and he comes home and he says, mum, We've got to read a book and take a test. Okay, Nicholas, you read the book and take the test. It's a program that was set up in the school to encourage children to read. Most parents hated it in the end. Nicholas came home and at 7 o'clock at night, he goes to his bedroom and starts reading. At 9 o'clock at night, I'm knocking on his door saying, Nicholas, it's time to go to bed. You know, you've Nicholas read for two hours a night, five and six and seven nights a week to read one Goosebumps book. So you've got persistence, you've got time on task, you've got a system in the school that Nicholas is willing to put the effort into. That in itself was huge. He's no longer reading 20 minutes a night, but two hours a night. That was number two. 
And number three is once you start doing this level of reading, you see, you know, he's putting in so much effort. Again, he's like treading water in the pool, isn't he? He's getting stronger, but he's taking too long to read it. Because Lubbock is hours and hours and hours and hours for any other town. Whenever you drive anywhere, we listen to books on CD. If you've got a problem, you've got to have the language. And Nicholas is the first saying, what book are we listening to now? And so you start listening to get the language of his peers. It's a real study in what you have to do to be successful in school. Was there any provision in the schools at that time for dyslexia? Ah. <laughs> oh, it's a con job, isn't it, really? When Nicholas went from Australia to the US, he has to be retested. And to, uh, to qualify is the word for special education services, Nicholas had to have a gap, a 15-point gap between his performance and his IQ. Nicholas has got a language problem. IQ tests are all based in language. How well is he going to do on an IQ test? In fact, his performance is above his IQ. No, your child doesn't qualify for special education because there's no gap in his performance and IQ. And that becomes another story about who has access to services. And then I became a reading specialist and I went to Lubbock. The first, one of the first people I meet is a mother whose 13-year-old child had spent four years in a phonics-only reading program because he was dyslexic. So we put you in this program. Four years. He came out non-reading. Totally non-reading, unable to read anything. And I said, I think I know what to do. And I spoke to him on a podcast and he said, you know, before she came along, I thought, you know, she won't be able to do it. I just can't do this reading stuff. And she doesn't know what she's got here because I can't read. I taught him to read. And I taught him to read over a summer at the end of the summer the mother contacted the school district and said, you employ this woman or I see you. I got employed. And so now I'm in touch with children who failed the reading program and I've seen what they have done to these children who they label dyslexic is they shove them in a reading program that's phonics-based, that is so boring it would kill me and it killed the children. And they had this blinkered idea of what is required to teach children to read. And it's not child-centred. They're not engaged in learning. They're not actively engaged. And, 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 and. Have I got a fire in my belly? You're saying there it's phonics-based. Is, is, is phonics not a suitable method? No, that's not, the, that's not the problem. The challenge is phonics is one component of a complex problem and they only see the one component. They fail to ask, is the child engaged in our lesson? Because, you know, I'm going to teach you something, all right? Maybe I'm going to teach you a foreign language, 
all right? And I sit here and all I do for you from the, is give you these letters and sounds. What chance have you got of learning to read? Very slim. Talking to you, I'm not showing you how this works. I'm not engaging you. You are going to do these letters and these sounds and you're going to get it. And if you don't get it today, we're going to repeat it again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Did it work? And it's that, again, it's that fixed mindset. This is what you have to do. On my website, I have a free download and it's called MAPS. M-A-P-S for a number of reasons, but the first, the M, it's an acronym. M is for mindset. And mindset is what do I as a teacher have to do to teach you to read? And if my mindset is this is what I have to do and just go through these letters and sounds and not think what else do I have to do, is the child actively engaged in my lesson? Is the child working towards it? Because reading it's not about decoding words on paper. I could do that. I couldn't comprehend. It's about being actively engaged in learning. And you can't, and there's another quote, isn't there? I think it's Galileo. You can't teach anybody anything. You can only create circumstances where they can learn. I think that's the quote. I'll have to look it up. But the, I'm not... That perfectly defines the average schooling system. What's that? Well, in that, you know, and it may well work, you know, the method of information transfer is, you know, that, that sort of teaching. We will show you, we will, you will learn, you will repeat, you will do whatever, right? But then you, the cookie cutter just doesn't fit everyone. Mm -hmm. So hence you have, you know, that's the system, right? And that's where you have your divided road. Those that can do it that way and those that can't do it that mm. way. So, you know, yeah, and they get left and they get left behind. And who else gets left behind? And what brain power do we lose in that process? And the emotions that go on. I mean, oh dear, oh dear. What's more important, passion or IQ? IQ is a measure. It's a measure on paper. Persistence is more important. Passion, I, yes, I agree with you. Passion is more important. I don't know what IQ is, really. I don't know what IQ is. I don't know what, well, I do know what you mean because, you know, my husband and all these people at, at universities would have a high IQ. Nicholas won't have a high IQ because he doesn't have a high language score. <laughs> you know, it, it, what do we mean when we say IQ? And, see, it's fascinating because we go back to a child and you listen to a child talk and you'll say, oh, that's a really smart kid. Why? Because the words are babbling out of their mouth and you look at a child that's not talking and you instantly think, you might say, 
ah, that kid's not very smart. It's got nothing to do with smart. It's this one's got language and that one hasn't. And all we see is language. We don't see these other things. And Nicholas still today, Nicholas is slower at speech and thinking. So that if you give him a question, you'll notice there's a longer lag time before he answers. And that's the, the words have got to spin around. He's got to take your question and think, oh, what are they saying? And then he's got to get the words and then put those words in the right order to come out so that they come out in, in a way that you can understand. So even at times today, he doesn't look as smart as what he is. You would never know that he can do mathematics way beyond you. Is some of that a technique, you know, to sort of just slow it down, not to, not to get wrapped up in the hype of the pressure or, do you know what I mean, to answer a question? Is it part of it? To... It's part of the process for Nicholas. He's yeah. certainly much, you know, and the, the brain, that the ear infections and the roots, it's a longer road. It's not the highway. It's a, it's a detour every time and he's not able to go a faster route. So his processing speed for language is certainly slower, still today. What was your husband's take on this? Because I'm assuming, uh, Jim, he doesn't have dyslexia, does he? No, no, he's phenomenal. He's an engineer. Um, I, I, you're right, he doesn't have dyslexia, but I remember my mother-in-law telling me that he failed in grade eight. He failed his English in grade eight. And the teacher said, well, he'll never go to university because he can't spell. None of that's true. And he changed schools. He changed schools in 10th grade. I might have got the years wrong. But he changed schools in 10th grade and he was behind when he went to the next school. He worked his butt off. He had a teacher who taught him to read, to, taught him to write effectively, and he graduated the top of the school. There were four people that graduated the top of the school. He was one of them, and he got prizes in physics and mathematics. I think. So the way we teach impacts the way students learn. Did that answer your question? No, he's not dyslexic, but he obviously had more of a struggle with learning language than he did with mathematics. And his story is fascinating too, because he said in eighth grade, we had a maths club for in, in, our, in the high school. And we had this teacher who would just take us for lunchtime mathematics. Can you imagine that? It's the ability to play, it's not tested. This is a game. And the amount of stuff he's learning is phenomenal. And it fed for him a lifetime of loving mathematics. Again, we're back to the, the power of the teacher yeah. and, and the positive and the negative, right? So, but if, yeah. if someone can break down and communicate a concept to you in a way that's readily digestible, then 
you will feel connected to them. You will learn the subject, and even though it may or may not be your thing, but it's it's understandable. Therefore, it probably will become your thing. I'll continue on with my story because my learning hasn't stopped. Okay, so in 2007, Nicholas graduates high school. He wins the Yes I Can Award from Exceptional Children for, for Academics. And we return to Australia. Nicholas starts doing engineering and mathematics. He starts in the engineering degree. And because Tasmania, University of Tasmania is small, he has to do the mathematics in the mathematics department, not the engineering department. He fell in love with the mathematics professor and the mathematics again and kept slipping and doing more and more mathematics. In 2012, he graduates with honours degree in, in engineering and mathematics. This kid who couldn't do anything. And then at the end of that, he, he's applying for scholarships and he has a scholarship to do a PhD in applied mathematics at Oxford University. So from the worst child I've seen to PhD Oxford. In 2018, he graduated with his PhD. And that was, I mean, that was a big deal. But, uh, but it was a community that brought us there. When Nicholas was seven and he's reading, I knew I'd done so much to get him to that point. But from there on, it was, the, it was a community that created Nicholas, that level of studies. And what happened after that was I thought, now I'll be able to ask Nicholas what happened in first grade. And I, I said to him, Nick, what happened? Can you tell me what happened in first grade? Because he's articulate. He's confident. You know, he talks to anyone. My son cried and not a word emerged from his mouth. And that's when I realised what happened in first grade was a traumatic experience that no child should ever have to go through. And how I wish I had removed him from school on day six. As you say, though, the system's just not set up that way. You'd be, I don't know how severe they take it, but I know here you'd be potentially brought to the police. Yeah. You know, but, for... But that teacher said it on day six, you know, so far behind, you can't do a single thing. Mm. What I didn't know was that she shouted at him every single day of that day. And he learned, I'm dumb. Mm. Can't do it. I'm not like everybody else. Horrendous, horrendous, horrendous. And because of that, you know, I, uh, I've started a podcast series titled When Learning is Trauma because that's what happened. And then, you know, the turnaround, the turnaround came because we were in Oxford. And, you know, It was, and I don't, and then I said to Nicholas too, you know, okay, we're not going to talk about what happened in first grade. Tell me what happened in Oxford. And it was like, oh, a switch. And he's now not crying. He's laughing. And he said to me, oh, well, I remember the poems that you wrote for me. And he named the poems 20-something years later. He could tell you exactly what poems were. And he said in the mapping, well, the mapping taught me to love learning. I, and I never want to stop learning. And then he started to giggle, and it was a seven-year-old giggle. And he said, 
you wrote a poem about a witch's spell. I said, I did. And he said, we wrote the ingredients for the witch's spell. And it was just so funny. Now, what was so interesting and hilarious to me, in my book, I did not comment one thing about this witch's spell poem at all. Why not? Because as an adult, my poem was not worthy to show the world. What I ignored was Nicholas's response. I knew that he was laughing, that when people would come to our door occasionally, he would run to our room and pick up his book and say, read this, read this. And it wasn't the poem. It was read his ingredients. And what do children remember? What's important is the emotion I created through doing that crazy poem. My poem was written with the idea of learning spit, spot, spell, and spin. So it was a, a naughty little witch spitting in a spell and spinning on the spot. But it was the ingredients that grabbed Nicholas for life. So in my next book, I'm writing that, you know, and how the emotion is critical. And then my sister, my younger sister, she's a psychiatric nurse. She and I were talking about this and she said, Lois, you did what you had to do. You created the learning environment for Nicholas that was critical and it, he was safe. He was happy. And when the brain is like that, the brain learns. The brain does not learn under stress. And so when Nicholas was in first grade, there's no way in the world he was learning a single thing. His brain was shut down. Nothing goes in. Nothing goes out. But he needed to know he was safe. And then not only was safe, he tapped into his curiosity. And that's when the growth in his brain happened. And so now I do a lot of reading on emotional, um, the emotion involved in learning and the power and the importance of creating this environment where children are happy. They're laughing because laughter attaches to memory. And so emotions are not an optional extra in learning. Emotions are critical to our learning and critical because they allow us to access memory. What's, what's your fire in the belly? We cannot let children sit in our classrooms and say, well, look at them, look at their IQ. They can't read. My fire in the belly is that we must teach these children who sit on the sidelines of our society. Hmm. That's my fire in the belly. Now, it happened when that lady said he's the worst child I've seen in 20 years of teaching, followed by I saw a cat which he'd never dot, dot, dot seen, you know, yet he had seen a Gutenberg Bible. Come on. And an academic paper saying exactly that drives me. And do we engage children? Are we creating active learners? That's my fire in the belly. And guess what? 12 months ago, a mother contacts me from Houston and she's in tears. Oh, she's, I didn't know her. She'd read my book. She'd read my book, you know, when it first came out in 2018, and this is 2020, so two years. She said, well, I was my 16-year-old. He's nearly 16. He can't read a single thing. We spent four years in a school for dyslexic learners, and he's come out. He's not reading. They're telling me he's got a low IQ. He's got no phonemic awareness, blah, blah, and so the words are just flowing out of her. And I said, well, would you like me to teach him? Would, 
we'll see how it goes. You know, let's just try one lesson. The first thing I do with children is ask them to give me a sentence with the word T-O. So I write it in the chat box. Give me a sentence with the word T-O. This kid is 15 years old, 16 in September. What does he say? He says, I've got two lizards the same. He catches lizards in his backyard. So I've got two lizards the same. What's he done? What sentence do you expect it for the word T-O? Mm. To school. He's still, I've got two lizards. Give me a sentence with the word F-O-R. And he said, I have four grey sharks, T. Why can't this kid read? If you don't understand the difference between T-O and T-W-O and F-O-R and F-O-U-R and you're 16-year-old, you won't learn to read. The decoding on top is irrelevant because you haven't understood the basics. It's foundational. And you want to know the big news? <laughs> There's a lot of stories here. I have had an academic paper published. Lots of things. My, which is huge for me. Mm. I'm dyslexic. I struggle with writing. What I did was I contacted a professor who had read my book and we would talked and communicated and, and done things. And I said, I can't write a paper on my own. It'll get rejected. He said, send it to me. I sent him the paper. And he said, this belongs in the Reading Teacher, which is a, a premier magazine for the International Literacy Association. So if you want to read the article, you have to join the International Literacy Association, which is about $35, and then access the Reading Teacher. And my paper is on pronouns, these little words, he, she, they, them, and it, in that children read the words and fail to work out what the meaning is. My student from Houston was one of these. And so it's pronouns and words with multiple meaning. But that's another fire in my belly. It's everything I do is foundational. I'm not doing high-level thinking at the beginning, but I'm making sure my students understand how the written language works. Then we can, and how we do that. How we use da-da-da-da-da. That's my fire in the belly. <laughs> how and how is your son's fire in the belly? Because I mean, that, this is a lot of attention for him, for a young, young boy at the time, you know, which, you know, the sort of individual attention, this extra work or what might be perceived as extra work. How did he take to it? He, he's got a lot of my husband in him. I'm persistent. He's persistent. You know, he's got a drive. I mean, he works ridiculous hours now, ridiculous hours. He loves learning. He, you know, I, I struggle to, as I said, I struggle to think what would have happened if he hadn't learned to read because he's phenomenal. He's married this wonderful lady who has got a brain as good as his and she's got really incredible language skills. So they might be all right when, if and when they have children. But, you know, he just loves learning and he knows so much. He knows stuff that blows me away. It, it, you know, the whole thing, all, and, and he's still in Oxford, and he said the other day, you know, I can't believe this city has become so important to me. I mean, and he, he grows up and he just flits off all of the, the incidences, I think, but I think as he gets older, he'll be aware of 
what a privileged life he's had. He knows that, that he needed to succeed. The, the trip to Oxford or that, that trip overseas, was that consequential? Was that, was that something your husband, you were doing as a family anyway, or was it tied together? So I'm not quite sure. Well, he had, my husband's professor and he had study leave. So he had six months study leave. There. Right, okay. So he was going back with his work and it, you know, just happened to be the year Nicholas was seven. He'd failed that first grade, you know. If it had been a year later, it would have made a difference because Nicholas would have been that much further behind and there'd been that much more failure in school. As much as anything, it changed my attitude. Because when I talked, when you talk to Nicholas as a six or seven-year-old, you could see he knew things, but the length of time he took to get the answer out, good grief, it took forever. You know, it was really hard work. And that's what you see. And you can't see this kid who's capable of getting a PhD. So one of the things I say to my, when I talk to teachers and I talk to parents, instead of seeing this child as having a language deficit or a learning disability, let's see them as future rocket scientists. Because B, it's us that have to change and it's our attitude that has to change. When I was diagnosed, I find it quite fascinating, the process. I'm, I'm just naturally, I'm a curious person. So I suppose for any of the listeners, just really the way I was diagnosed was that it, it was an IQ test, but there's also a, I'm going to say a literary test and a numerical yeah. test. Uh, there was yeah. about five or six sets of tests, I think in total, if I remember rightly. Yeah. Um, and the results back were that my reading and writing were below average. As simple as below average. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. But my um, interpretation and spatial awareness yeah. were significantly above average, which when collated and brought together in whatever way the numbers are run, gives me a slightly higher than average IQ yeah. in, this, in this method of yes, measuring. <clears throat> and now I only went there for the piece of paper or yeah. the confirmation, put it that way, so that I yeah. knew that if I had it, chances are we would look out for it with my girls. Yeah. Understanding that was a complete game changer for me. Really? Tell me. I want to know more. <laughs> it's fascinating because I'm not saying I was saying earlier, it's like I will never read or write for leisure or pleasure. You know? So I would have taken so Typically, and, and I was a relatively high achiever in London at the time. I had a you know very good job. And I would go into a meeting for one hour, and then I would do the, the most very extensive notes, but it would take me two or three hours. Yes, yes, yes. yes. But I would compensate by working longer hours. Yes. So everyone else would see these excellent notes. It was very useful. Now, I needed that also because I felt my memory was weak. So I was saying I was... That's why I was accounting for it, you know, and that, and, but I was sort of going, fuck me, you know, one, one hour equals three hours of meet, meetings yes. and notes. Yes. So the person who diagnosed me says, well, change your form. Okay. So learn how you learn. And this is a, an expression I love is learn how you learn. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things I changed at that time was 
and whilst I might never pick up a book for, for that, it's, it's, it is ironic because I run a, a book club every morning. <laughs> the irony hasn't left me, but, um, but actually for me to learn, I will do it uh, by listening. Yes, 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 yes. And not only that, and the game, another game changer for me was to actually listen at a higher speed. Yes. Okay. Yes. So I will listen to everything at, at, at speed one. I get bored and I switch off. I yes. don't engage at two higher speeds to yes. even 1.5 is probably a bit much, but, um, yes. but when I get the speed right, I will literally devour. It's a bit like, yes. you're, you know, you were saying with your son there, it's actually when the, the opportunity comes, suddenly you read and read and read and read and read, yes. you know, when yes. you find that sweet point, the, you know, the yes. sweet spot. And that was the game changer for me. Um, you know, people would say to me, you know, before I would have had, now I say to people, don't send me any more, don't send me an email any more than one paragraph long. Because honestly, I just, I'm not going to read it. I just, yeah. I won't. And people think I'm being rude. It's like, no, I just, I just genuinely won't. Um, if you want notes from this meeting, we record it and I'll send you the recording. And so within five minutes after the meeting, my work is done. You'll have it. And it's not two hours or three hours later. The relief that's given me is yeah. huge, yeah. absolutely yeah. huge. And it's like, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's forgiving yourself for the stuff that just doesn't come to you naturally rather than going, oh, I'm a terrible reader and I'm this and that. And it's like, yeah. yes, you are, maybe. Yeah. But at the same time, you overcompensate perfectly elsewhere. Yeah. So for that reason, it's actually been one of the most useful things. You know, to see that, and and I saw it, my niece. You know, and they they caught it fairly early in her schooling. She was, she, you know, she was starting to flag up, and she was showing up in some of the test results. Yeah. They, she wears glass. The I don't know what you call them, the, the filter glasses. So she wears yeah. the yellow ones, and yeah. the yellow paper. Game changer. Yeah. Which is lovely to see, you know. And I now mentor in some schools, and a lot of them. There's a couple of schools here locally who are turning to all dyslexia led learning so instead of doing it by exception they're doing, they're doing it, by, it by rule by rule yes. exactly so everyone gets yellow paper you know not, and they said not on white yeah, yeah. yeah. so yeah. they just they changed they've changed all the, the school font i don't know which is the, the yes. whatever it is but they changed the font yeah. they changed all this the paper so instead of then yeah. like trying to pick up the people who are dyslexic yes. they say, well, we'll just, just everyone. yeah yeah but you can That's you can awesome yeah yeah, this should have been done. And the listening. My book is on audio. Good. It's available on my website and on, on Amazon, and you will need to speed it up. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's not only that. It's that teaching went from being, you know, this dull thing where I was terrifying my son to this is so exciting. Hmm. And that's what we should be doing for every child and watching Nicholas grow, watching him get it was a game changer. And not only Nicholas, every other student that I taught, they're getting it. They want to be there. You know, but we have to value teachers' time. The stuff that I did doesn't come easily. Once you've built it, set it up, it's fine. But it takes time to build that up. And it takes time to build up the knowledge that I took to learn about teaching these kids too. And we don't value that either. We just want it to be quick, do it, do it, do it, do it mm. and do it this way. And you can't. And and our children, they're at the beginning of their lives. The cost of losing them is far, it's is too much. 
We can't push them aside. That's another fire in the belly that we, we like Nicholas. Nicholas got a PhD in applied mathematics from Oxford University. That's the child that we wrote off at seven. Hmm. How many more are we writing off? We're putting them in prison. We're doing this and that and the other. And then we've got a gate to say, oh, you can't access services because your IQ is not high enough. I think there's almost a, for me, there's a, and this, this, the whole precipice of this show almost is, you know, this pandemic of okay or good. It's, you know, and unfortunately, I think it's a ridiculously high statistic that people will live a good life. People will live an okay life or they will have an okay education or a good education. And you kind of go in the decision tree of life, it should be, Absolutely, definitely, yes, or hell no. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's too many people sitting because maybe the system just about gets them through, but it certainly doesn't find, they don't necessarily learn how they learn. As you say, they, they, they learn enough to read a book, but they certainly don't learn enough to actually learn how to read fully and properly yeah. and, and engage yeah. and, and grow that as a, as a skill set. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's, you know, it's not, it's not to take away from, the likes of your son, you know, or anyone there's that's been caught, but it's also gone. There's a whole lot of bland nothingness in the middle. It's like you were saying with taxes. It's like there's just, you know, that doesn't, it's scary. I find, you know, from my, just from watching, accountability for teachers has been detrimental for student learning. And the accountability comes in the name of test scores. We want every child in this school to be at this level, at this grade. And I don't know what it's like in Ireland, but in the, in the US, the expectation of what children can read at the age of eight or nine, to me, is crazy. You know, and everyone's going, well, they don't. And then when they don't get there, then we give them more phonics instead of all the other things that we need. Uh, what we've done to education and then education in this country is based on multi-choice questions. If you want to kill learning, give me a multi-choice question because I've read the passage. Did I get it right or did I get it wrong? That's the end of my learning. And I found this, I have this phenomenal poem about a man called Anton Lee Wanhoek. I bet you've never heard of him. <laughs> Do you want me to read the poem to you? Please do, yeah. That'd be awesome. I found it. I've got it here. Oh, look at this. This is, a, this is what I do. It's called the microscope, and it says, Anton Leeuwenhoek was Dutch. He sold pin cushions, cloth and such. The waiting townsfolk fumed and fussed as Anton's dry goods gathered dust. He worked instead of tending score, store at grinding special lenses for a microscope. Some of the things he looked at were Mosquito wings, the hair of sheep, the legs of lice, the skin of people, dogs and mice, ox's eyes, spider's spinning gear, fish's scales, a little smear of his own bud, and best of all, the unknown, busy, very small bugs that swim and bump and hop inside a simple water drop. Impossible, most Dutchmen said. This Anton's crazy in the head. We ought to ship him off to Spain. He says he's seen a housefly's brain. He says the water we drink is full of bugs. 
He's mad, we think. They called him dumb cluff, which means dope. That's how we got the microscope. <laughs> and what struck me is I saw this piece on the internet, which I've been using for years, and after it came some multi-choice questions, and I thought that just killed it for me. <laughs> you were doing so well. It stops you asking further questions. Hmm. So who was Anton Lee Wonhoek? What did he do? Why is he important? How does the pin cushions and that tie into microscopes? Do you want to know the story behind it? Please do, yeah. He was a Dutchman who was a cloth merchant. And a cloth merchant, I think he's 1560s. I could be wrong with that, or 1660s, around that time. To count the cloth, he needed a, a magnifier. And he needed to grind lenses to magnify things. And obviously his curiosity got the better of him. And he went from not only looking at cloth, but to all the other things that are microscopic. He was our first microscope. He was a Dutchman. He wrote to the English society and said, these are the things I found. And he's now recognised as the father of the microscope. He came before Hook and Boyle. And so when I read this poem, I had 16-year-olds and, and, and we're doing it. And he said, now we need to see a microscope. <laughs> Experience plays into this as well. And that's what happened to Nicholas in Oxford. Learning did not just happen in our classroom, but it spilled out to everything we were doing over all sorts of levels. And with the experience came the emotion of joy and happiness. And this is so exciting. And that's what that poem does for me, because it makes you ask questions. Who was Anton Lincoln? How did he do it? And, you know, we were at the British Library one day. And what's there? The letters of Anton Lee Hook to the British Society. In Dutch, couldn't read them, no translation. But he was, he was one of the first ones. And, again, he was a man outside the system. He wasn't within the community. So my passion are for people who are outside of the system, who knock it, who give us knowledge that we don't expect to come from somewhere else. And how, again, the mindset is we are right and you are wrong. We've got it right and we don't want to know you. So do you know about longitude? Yeah. The finding of longitude? I don't know about the finding of it, no. The finding of long, fascinating story. Fascinating story. And so all this has come from my teaching. So, you know, my learning was really dull growing up. And now with my husband, who just explores everything with my children and my teaching of Nicholas, my world had just gone poof. And I want my students to know that the world we live in is just phenomenal. And there's so much to learn. And it goes so much beyond the teaching of Dakota. I have a fire in my belly for so many things. But leaving children behind is the worst thing we can possibly do because we don't know what brain we are leaving behind. I have a live hypothesis that if you are alive and have a beat in your heart, you have a fire in your belly. Now, that may be a towering inferno of fire, or that may be the most distant, far-off, tiny, minute flame. But I do believe you have to be, you know, if you're alive, you have. 
And as you talk and you describe, and even, you know, and it was one of my questions is, is this your purpose? Is this your calling? You know, and, and because the amount of energy you give off when you speak about it, obviously it's something that's been, I'm sure at the time it was quite challenging, let's say. But now it's there and it actually, it, there's so much energy is, is given off, you know, so the sexothermic type, you know, which is fantastic. And I think everyone has that if they find, your, find their thing. The passion, yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, would you describe this as your calling? Is this your purpose, oh. do you think? Oh, definitely, definitely. To, to just, you know, to education, to put a little spoke in it and think wider. And as I say again and again and again, you know, the children we write off, and Nicholas could have been one of those children. It just blows my mind. And then we just put them in prison. And Nicholas is learning. Okay, this, is, this was dramatic for me. Yes, it is my purpose. Nicholas is the top of the academic tree. He's white, he's male, and he lives in a, in a first world country. And they failed him. If you add layers to that, a colour, a race, a socioeconomic disadvantage, the chances of you getting out of that drops again and again and again. And Nicholas moved from country to country, not school to school, not state to state, but from country to change his life. Never should that be a requirement to become successful. Got a fire in my belly. <laughs> That's why I contacted you. I thought, I've got to talk here. <laughs> I love it. I mean, it's, there's just so much here, and it's, it's so inspiring that you've, you've done this. Talk to us, how did the book come about? What triggered you to, to collate it and bring it about? My husband, you know, we went back to Australia in 2007, and by 2010, my husband's, you know, stressed out of his brain, and he was offered a job in upstate New York, and he took it. So for a year or a couple of years, we had three children on three continents. I follow my husband and eventually um, I go back to school because I can't teach up here. That's what I find. I cannot teach in upstate New York. My qualifications, I haven't been through the nice, simple little steps. and So in 2015, I've completed my master's degree. I thought, what do I want to do? My friend said, what do you really want to do? And I said, I want to tell Nicholas' story. I can't write. I'm dyslexic. I've not practised. But Nicholas has gone from this kid who can't do anything to PhD. By that time, he's in the PhD program. So I sat down and wrote my story for six months. And, of course, it's a total mess and tenses are everywhere in, in one sentence. <laughs> and I start going to writing classes. And at the writing class, I meet a young girl who's my son's age. And she said, Lois, I'll help you write it. She worked with me for a year to write this story that I am now so proud of because it wouldn't have happened without her. And it's a story you want to read. And my father read it and he said, Lois, I just didn't want to put it down. I just wanted to turn the page. What do you want from a story? You want someone to turn the page. And so that's how it came about. So now I've, now I've got the reading program to help other children. I didn't think I'd be able to write a reading program because I do quite a lot of individual work, but I met this guy who only learned to read when he was in his 20s. He connected through LinkedIn, and, and together we've now got a reading writing program that we're just starting to sell. 
and you come up again against, you know, people who are 16, 15, non-reading, and they're writing on it, spelling on a second grade reading, second grade level, and you know they can't do basic stuff that they should be able to. So that's how it came about. So I'm up every day trying to sell my book or sell this or not so much sell but promote. We've mm. got children to read. And it's been a fascinating journey because I've tried to talk and be paid to talk and no one wants me. And turn people turn around, you know, and say things like, well, your book, it's just a story. Can't tell you what I think about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, to give it, give it its, its, its proper title, so it's reversed a memoir by Lois yeah. E. Latchford. So yeah. if you're looking on, so it's available in all the, the, the formats. So we you, your paper copy, your audio and Kindle version as well, right? Yes. Yes. And the audio version, I read it. And so it, it's, yeah, it's good. Yeah. It's an abridged version, the audio, because, you know, the reading, like you say, is a dyslexic to read aloud is a real challenge. And I, hadn't done enough practice when I did that one. My readings got better aloud, but, you know, you realise there's a, the muscles that need to work to do all the talking have to work. And, you know, it's a bigger challenge than you know. I, I read my own book for Kindle or for, for Audible earlier this year. And yes, it took a lot longer. <laughs> I think the the recording time in the studio, I think I had to double it, you know. Yes. Um, yes. Only for the fact it was super convenient. I probably would have gone, you know, get me somebody who can read yes. quickly and efficiently. Yeah. But you know what? It's it's there just with a bit of extra time and and you yeah. know, give you know. So uh, I get it. I, I totally get it. And I, I tip my hat to you. It's yeah. awesome. Awesome. Things we put ourselves into. If you were to describe your fire in the belly in one or two words, what would they be? One or two words? Mm-hmm. Now it's got to be teach kids to read. Four words. Teach kids to read. Tap into their curiosity. Mm. Do something. Do something. Don't let failure take over. There's four. <laughs> four sentences. <laughs> it's that. It's inside everyone, isn't it, really? It's a case of yeah. how you're going to get it out. Yeah. You know, it's not a case of if, it's a case of how. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's going to be how. How are we going to do it? And I think, you know, we have to give teachers a bit more time. Mm. Oh, you know, it's, it's, life is getting really tough now, really tough for our kids. So. There's a book, um, uh, Black Box Thinking. Oh, I don't know that one. Yeah, it's it's black box thing, and I want to say, oh god, I can't remember the author's name anyway, but it'll, it'll come back to me. But um, it's super interesting that they talk about the difference between the U.S. hospital system and then oh. the uh, the well, I think it's the U.S. Um, airline system. Oh, right. So comparing a plane to a hospital. And how they deal with crisis, how they deal with um, situations. Yeah. And so in hospitals, it's more or less to summarize and to just sort of steal the plot of the book slightly. But in hospitals, it's a case of, as we say with teachers, it's a case of it's all about the stats. You know, why would you want to uncover a, you know, because there's no embargo. If you if there's a problem, there's no sort of explanation. There's nothing. There's no leeway. 
So as a result, you're more or less prompted to hide it. Whereas in the airline industry, they almost celebrate this. And you get, if you come forward with a problem, you get, a, it's like a, I think it's like a, if you come in within two weeks, you get a, a immunity from prosecution, prosecution or, you know, all this. The thing is they promote this open yes. environment and yes. they take yes, an, yes, event, yes. an event that happens on the ground as serious as, a, as an event in the sky and yes. doing all this. And uh, it's just fascinating and how it ultimately then lends up into a completely different set of scenarios where yes. aviation industry, they are excelling in, in excellence yes. and the hospitals are, well, you're fine until you make, make your next mistake and then you're gone. Yeah. You know, and yeah. it's, it's fascinating. It's, it's, it's a read that might be of interest to you. You know. I've read two books. One is Curiosity and one is Why. Curiosity by Ian Leslie. Let me just get him down. Mm -hmm. This is a curious picture because you're leaning into a virtual bookshelf and pulling out a book. <laughs> I see. Look, I've got books everywhere. <laughs> This is Curiosity by Ian Leslie and Why by Mario Levia. And I think it's in Curiosity. They talk about, ah, it is. They talk about a, an accident on a plane in 19, 1987, I think. Somewhere, no, it's at the end. It's at the end. The plane, you know, the pilots are talking, talking, talking as they're taking off. The plane takes off and boom, it, it crashes. When they did the analysis, they couldn't believe what happened, that the pilots had failed to do something with the flaps and they aligned it to driving through the garage door. It's one of the first things you should have seen. And why did it happen? Why were these pilots so blind? There's a young girl. She's an engineer. She's not a pilot. Comes and looks at this data from her point of view and she said what she did was doing a PhD in something or other, but she wanted the pilots to think through scenarios rather than just run through checklists and work out why it was going on. Her work was implemented, and there have been no accidents like that since that day. But it was thinking. I should find the chapter. I, can't, I won't do it instantly. But it's encouraging the people to think through the scenarios rather than yeah. just do a check this, check this, check this, check. And that's what we don't do with teaching. As you were saying with your son, it's, 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 that, it's that transformation of a word into matching it with a picture, yes. right? Taking it into a story. This is not just a list. This is a story, a list, and, and here's what you should see and, and tie all the things together, and then it makes a, a proper picture, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you as the reader have got to do some work. Mm. You can't sit down and just read the words like I was doing as a kid. Yeah. And the brain is going bizarre and coming up with nothing. Mm. You know, you've got to come up with something that makes sense, that's sequential. And, no. and you can follow it so that when someone talks, this is the response. Yeah. So powerful. Yeah. Where can people learn more, hear more, see more, reach out, get the book, 
find I'm more at about Lois, yourself. is my website. I'm on LinkedIn. I've been a bit slack this week. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter, but certainly my website. Email me. Contact me through my website. My company is Teaching Students with Dyslexia. And if you have a child who is behind, contact us and uh, you'll be surprised what we can do. You know, and I believe in children. I believe mm. we can teach them. Mm. Powerful. Is there a final message you'd like to leave with people? Believe in that child that's struggling and reach out for, reach out for help. You're not alone. Well, that's the final message. And my fire in my belly, it's still there, Pete. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Lois, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on. I have a feeling we could talk for all day pretty much. And uh, I, I know for me, it's very refreshing to hear it and to see, you know, being such an advocate of it, you know, and I think it's, it's you know, the ripples will be felt for quite some time. So thank you for, thank you for sort of grabbing the torch and running. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you, Lois. Take care. Pete, before you go, I do a series of When Learning is Trauma. Mm -hmm. Would you like to join us at some stage and tell a story? I'd be absolutely honoured. Oh, perfect. We talk on a Monday afternoon. Oh, I have to check your time zone. I'm looking at next year, January, February. Sure. And we, we... because and we do YouTube live, but we'll adjust the timing so that it's not 10 o'clock at night for you or something. <laughs> That's fine. Well, 10 o'clock at night works because when you've got young kids, you let them get to bed. Uh, so, how old are your girls now? Uh, so, I have my oldest is four and I have twins, and they're two and a half. So, three, three <laughs> under five is yeah, fun. Oh, all the best. Rich blessings, rich blessings. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll four o'clock our time, Eastern time. I'll send you an email because that would just be fun to get your story and yeah, be honoured. I'd be your honored. journey and you know just promoting that we can't leave children traumatised and stuff. Yeah. It's something we expect children. To yeah. So I'll be honoured. Fantastic. Thank awesome. you very much. Thank you. Okay. Until the next and time. I'm, yeah. Okay. Bye. Take care. Bye bye. Well, that was another great episode of Fire in the Belly. You know, this really wouldn't be possible without our great guests taking the time to share their personal journeys. And boy, boy, sometimes it is personal. It's an absolute pleasure to have that and then to hear the journeys that people have been on. We've loads more episodes coming up soon and it's always a pleasure to have guests on. If you do happen to know anyone with true fire in their belly, please reach out to us so we can share their journey, lessons and successes. So, all that's left to say is have a great day, live with fire in your belly, and be the mightiest version of you.